Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. In the industry, we call them cigarette burns. That's the cue for a changeover. He flips the projectors, movie keeps right on going, and nobody in the audience has any idea. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. With like 100 episodes plus deep, like we're going to end up having the same conversation in some form or another over and over again. But lately I think we've been like hitting, a, hitting on a point about the, the danger of like a kind of inescapable sameness of the theatrical experience. Like if there's a certain type of movie that people are only going to, there's going to be a homogenization that's like hard to break. Mm-hmm. And so we've been like kind of championing movies that like kind of have an uphill battle for them, you know, you know, with uh midnight special green room, the lobster, these movies that sort of demand and benefit from a big screen experience. And um, yeah, I feel like people, our listenership is responsive to them. Most mm-hmm. of them probably went to go see those movies. Mm-hmm. But there's also, I'm noticing just a glazing over that's happening when I'm having these conversations in the world with people that are right in front of me. They're just like, oh, what? Like, who cares? I'm like, but uh, clearly I do. Like, I care that, like, there's there's movies that are just, like, shining examples of what's just entertainment, like The Nice Guys. And, like, you know, last weekend, Popstar opened. A perfectly, like, incredibly well-engineered comedy that, like, for all intents and purposes, has already bombed at the box office. And it's it's an original movie, the same way The Nice Guys is. It's not a part of a, like, already established franchise and, uh, you know, like, established property already in IP, if you will, if you're in the industry. The fact that these movies that are fluff, because people don't want to work, they just want to be entertained. And so it's just like, well, these are those movies. Like, you can have those. And the fact that we have to, like, argue on behalf of those... It's sort of disheartening and like it's it's just getting to a point where like now like maybe my eyes are going to glaze over. It's just like we have to resign that like if money is the democratic choice, then like maybe we're in a place where we no longer recognize. And so the movie that we're going to discuss primarily and its subjects kind of like whole filmography that we're going to discuss this episode is De Palma, the film about Brian De Palma, and then we're going to discuss Brian De Palma's work. And having a movie like De Palma in the theaters right now feels kind of like a weird eulogy of an era that's, like, so over, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, Brian De Palma, the subject of the film, even says at one point, when he's just talking about his peers, um, being George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and Francis Ford Coppola, he says, what we did in that generation could never be duplicated. And it's like, that's a point that Eric, you and I hit on a lot. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, it's really true that this this filmmaker who like is arguably 
not the runt of the group, but he's probably the most highly contested of the group. His greatest works are still kind of like, well, like people still pick them apart more than like even George Lucas's like greatest works. People are like, Star Wars is safe, you know, like they'll leave Star Wars alone. And so, like, he's a hotly contested person, but, like, he got to have, like, decades and decades to just, like, to do what he wanted. And it feels like now that ability to sort of be given as as much of a struggle as it was movie to movie for Brian De Palma to, to exist in an industry that's constantly fluctuating, um, it still feels like wow, like, will we ever have another one of those filmmakers? You've got to realize you're being criticized against the fashion of the day. And when the fashion changes, everybody forgets about that. Being a director is being a watcher. You have a lot of egos in the room, and you have to sort of watch how they interact with each other. There was Marty and I, then there was George and Francis and Steven. What we did in our generation will never be duplicated. You're battling a very difficult system, and all the values of that system are the opposite of uh, to, to what goes into making original good movies. This documentary, De Palma, which you know, made by Noah Baumbach, a director who you know whose movies we've brought up on the podcast, and Jake Paltrow. Now, are you as familiar with him? Because I I had forgotten Young Ones. Yeah, Young Ones, which was yeah. a good little sci-fi indie movie with Michael Shannon in it. Like, totally worth just putting that out there for people. Check out Young Ones. I mean, that was a that was a totally underrated, under the radar movie from a few years ago from that director. So, yeah. Um. But, you know, anyway, that Jake Paltrow, Noah Baumbach, clearly fans of Noah, of, of Brian De Palma and uh, listening and reading some interviews with them. Like they clearly they got to be friends with this guy over like decades. And one of the things that I thought was kind of, um, you know, just sort of sweet to find out is that they, they kind of realized when they were um, they were like thrilled to get to meet Brian De Palma when they did, you know, they separately got to know him, became friends. They'd have dinner and then they like show their movies to each other. Mm-hmm. Like they, they kind of hinted that like Brian De Palma misses that because he used to really thrive on that back in that era of the seventies and maybe yeah. the early eighties with his peers. And it doesn't really happen anymore. And something that's kind of, interesting about the ups and downs of De Palma's career is like, he's kind of, I mean, maybe he's not the, as you said, he's not the runt of that litter, but he is the one that sort of a lot of people like will just brazenly dismiss. Like, um, I've just thrown certain things out there about De Palma lately on social media and, um, you know, critic friends or just movie lover friends of mine. Like some of them were just like, tell, you know, just dismissing his whole filmography is, is just crap. And it's like, wow, that's, that's interesting because I've had conflicted feelings with De Palma. Like, uh-huh. yeah, like every, I don't know, five years or so when I maybe catch up on a movie, his here, or there re- revisit one, I get these mixed feelings and I've thought he's a hack at times, but if nothing else, this documentary proves that he is not, he's just, there's no way you can label him a hack, even though a lot of people have throughout the years. Well, what this, what the documentary does um, really kind of like beautifully is give a context to each one of his films, because like basically the movie is is him as a as a talking head giving anecdotes and sort of talking through his his resume basically. Yeah. And so like I know that you and I discussed off mic that like 
I would have watched this as like a several hour thing. Mm-hmm. Like the necessity to see this in the theater, like if you love Brian De Palma, <clears throat> it's worth seeing all of those clips on the big screen again. Yeah. So like going to the theater makes sense if you're like a diehard fan. Um, otherwise, like I know people are just sort of like shrinking away from like going to see documentaries in the theater. Like they, like online at home is the place where people are experiencing documentaries by and large anymore. And so like, as I said, if you want to, if you, if you were drawn to this, go see it in the theater. But like, I would have watched hours and hours of this. And like the way to do that would probably be as a television series. Yeah. And so to just to watch him like, you know, elaborate on things, it, you know, would is really beneficial, especially because you and I were kind of like going over a lot of his like catalog, getting prepared for this episode. So having a context to even the movies that you maybe at first glance and first watch, like you didn't like, you know, like all of a sudden there was like a context to be like, oh, okay, this like this opens the movie up where I previously kind of like shut down to it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, his his most, like, kind of, like, irksome movies that are just like, ah, oh, this movie is just so sloppy or what, whatever your problems with it were. Or it's just so, like, it's just too goofy, like, in the case of Body Double. Like, you, you know, <laughs> have it, but, like, seeing where he was at in his career and what his personal life was like to sort of, like, to move him into this this period of, like, transition. And, like, you know, film, iconic filmmakers' flops are kind of become their one of their most interesting points, like why didn't this work? Why didn't this connect with an audience? And they're, they're sort of left alone. They're sort of roadkill for you to investigate in a weird way. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know? And, and so like, that was just a a, a great thing to be able to have this like context and the set of anecdotes to sort of bring something back to life, even if it was kind of something that was clumsy and didn't really work upon first viewing. And that's something that like all of his films, have those moments where you're like what but then like (laughs) there are sections of undeniability and i think most of his work where there it'll be like you know body double is a goofy movie it's a it's a sort of like it's 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 him at his most sleazy i think Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like it's like his hitchcock obsessions as reimagined in the realm of like sleazy cinemax uh late night cable you know, and so it's like this world. And so I have an affection for that because I grew up sneaking downstairs to watch late night cable when I was very little. <laughs> so that world felt like, oh, it still like has this pulse of evocativeness for me. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, ooh, like the, I, I remember what this looked like. Gross, you know, and so, <laughs> um, you know, but like there still is like sections in Body Double, which like as goofy as it is, are just like are brilliant beautifully executed set pieces, which is what he's so good at. So the people who are like, he's a hack, like, well, if he's a hack, how does he pull off these masterful sequences, you know, in like snake eyes, for instance, like he's got this like opening tracking shot for what's ultimately a kind of forehead slappingly stupid movie. Yes. (laughs) Like he still is like a technically incredible filmmaker. We're just like, we like as much as like this movie, maybe hilarious as another Nicolas Cage, what the fuck are you doing movie? (laughs) Like there still is an undeniability to a lot of the sequences in his, like at his worst quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I got the most out of this documentary, which first off, I mean, I think it's pretty simple. Like there's a lot of our listeners I'm sure are 
enthusiastic about movies in a similar way to us that they this movie's already on the radar and they're probably just ready to go you know dive in yeah. and i would say it will fulfill at the very least this movie will make you want to watch and revisit De Palma movies, even some of the ones you might think are bad. And that is its own sort of awesome currency to this movie. And, um, but I think almost just quickly, I just want to say to your point of like this movie, it's amazing that a two four who's distributing this is going to put it in theaters at all, because it does seem like tailor made for HBO or to stream on a, on one of the services. And maybe it was, you know, Noah Baumbach, Jake Poulter, they're filmmakers. They want to put out, uh, uh, they decided to make this a movie, but it's, it's hard to argue that this would have been even more, um, even better to give him more time with each film. That would be great. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think like this type of experience is happening more and more. And I know that, you know, a a much different type of documentary, but one that you had on your top 10 the year it came out was room Two Two Thirty Seven. Where it was like, I was going to bring this up. Yes. Yeah. It was like a cinematic, a cinema essay that like as much as you may disagree with a lot of points in the movie brought up by, you know, potentially mentally ill people, it still, <laughs> it asks you to like sharpen your focus on film. And if you love film, then this type of experience that De Palma is kind of an example of, and like, um, there are these two documentaries about horror franchises. One, uh, Never Sleep Again about mm. the Nightmare on Elm Street series and then Crystal Lake Memories, which is about the Friday the 13th series. Like it's this exhaustive kind of uh, exploration of of movies. And, you know, I kind of wish De Palma was one of those where it was like, you know, Never Sleep Again and Crystal Lake Memories, which are made by the same people. They're four hours long. Yeah. And so it's just like you have all this time. And because there's an attentiveness to something that at this point, out of context, maybe people don't have an entry point to. Mm-hmm. Maybe if you, maybe if like a kid nowadays watched Nightmare on Elm Street, they'd be like, it's slow or something like that. And like they, they, they'd have no way into it. And, but like with having a quality of attention given to something that had a tremendous cultural impact, pop cultural and like just culture at large, giving that sense of attention to it makes you want to go and rewatch even the shittiest ones. You know, you're just like, because mm-hmm. they have a quality all their own. It, it, you know, like Brian De Palma's missteps caused him to step in another direction for the film after that. If you want to argue that they're missteps. <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. And, and like, so that brings me to, to, to the body double section of the movie where mm-hmm. the, the context he gives is sort of a great window into, um, I think the more pragmatic sort of day-to-day realities of filmmaking that by and large, all of us just don't have a window to, I mean, you've made movies like you have, you have like you, you understand that a little bit, but me and I think, and just safe to say most moviegoers just don't have a window. So we make assumptions about things. And I think Brian De Palma is a director that it's really easy to be like, what idiot made thought that was a good idea. Like we can dismiss it and be reductive very quickly about his movies because they often, if not always operate on this sort of bizarro dream logic that is, that is more emotional at its core than logical. And I've, uh, that was one thing that really came into light for me with the documentary and revisiting these movies, a lot of these movies in a small chunk of time, but really just that the day-to-day pragmatic reality. So he's talking about body double in the documentary. Mm-hmm. And um, when that movie came out, it was a big controversy because uh, 
you know, like uh, f- uh, feminists like groups were really outraged that uh, the a woman gets killed with a massive phallic power drill. And yeah, it's the fr- framing of that shot, too, <laughs> that was the contested one. Totally. He's giving the sort of cultural feedback or the critical feedback to that sequence. I'm like, oh, yeah, how can you deny this? Like this, it, like he's putting, he's framing it through the killer's legs holding a giant drill like pushing down on her at a dick angle yeah. like you're <laughs> But, you know, the fa- interesting enough, he I mean, unless he's just being coy about it, like and he seems pretty um, open about everything. Like he he throws people under the bus. He throws himself under the bus in this documentary. Yeah. But he does just admit in body double. Well, the reason I chose the giant drill was because it was big enough to go through the floor and I needed the kill shot like, you know, for the for the hero to come underneath and the floor below and see yeah. it. He, and that's that's. That's the sequence I'm talking about. Like, yeah. that's a beautiful reveal. Like, when the there's, like, there's dualistic action going on. Mm-hmm. And, like, that reveal of the drill coming through the floor is, like, it's stunning. And you're just like, oh, like, that's that's horrifying. And it's just like, and that to me is one of those undeniable moments. And, you know, like, it, I think it, it like, his move, like his movies, can be argued, you know, at the time and then now, especially now with a, a culture of like profound sensitivity, is like they're problematic in air quotes, you know, mm-hmm. not to, you know, that's that's a buzzword, but like it's okay for things to be problematic, exactly. and I think that like you can take issue with that, and there 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 should be something troublesome, and he's like that's not a good moment. You're watching that woman die is fucking horrific, right. and there is something imposing and phallic about the way she dies and that that should be sort of like acknowledged as the horror that it is and i think something that he does that's exciting is he has like a kind of exploitation quality that's met with this kind of sweeping classical filmmaking quality that you know i mean hitchcock it's it, it it's very well covered in the documentary itself De Palma, yeah. that he owes a huge debt to Hitchcock and like loves vertigo loves rear window. And so that, that kind of like that elegant quality of like the crane shots that he uses constantly and the fluidity of the camera movement, there's this sweeping quality to sleaze at times. Like there's a beautiful crane shot outside of the apartment building. The main character is going into in body double at the very beginning. And you're just like, God, this is like, this is incredibly, this is incredible cinematography mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's the kind of beauty that's usually reserved for a certain type of movie, a like prestige movie. And it's like met with this like sleaze and this sort of like exploitation factor. That's like a really exciting cocktail at times, you know? And it's like, you would find that in like Giallo movies a lot where you're yes. like, there is gorgeous filmmaking going on. And same with the dream logic that's sort of employed by Brian De Palma in a lot of his thrillers, mm-hmm. you know, like Dress to Kill. There's sort of like a fever dream quality to the to the narrative that you're like, huh, what's going on? What does does this need to make sense? What the fuck is happening? You know, <laughs> and uh, or like in Scarface where mm-hmm. it's just like wait, is the movie suddenly on cocaine? Like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, one of my favorites, Sisters, is like operating on a total bizarro sort of like plot yeah. wavelength, you know? But like, it works so well if you can get on its wavelength. Sisters, they were once one in body and perhaps one in mind. 
Danielle and Dominique. One loving, one hating, one innocent, the other... Where does Danielle end and Dominique begin? devil hath joined together, let no man cut asunder. One of the things that really occurred to me of, of just getting into him more and watching this documentary is actually how deep his influence really does sort of ring out, you know, or like mm-hmm. circle out, like ripple effect of his influence is huge because um, like, they even bring up a movie, one of his early movies, Phantom of, the, Phantom of the Paradise, which I feel like I have to see now. I have never seen that movie, and it looks amazing. Uh, and, have you heard Brett Easton Ellis rave about it? No, but I'm sure he. I, could, I would love to hear I, him talk. I about think it. it's on the Ty West episode where he interviews oh, him on right, his right. podcast. I just you don't remember. Do yeah, I just don't remember, but I'll have to revisit that because – like a little thing, like it's not like it was a direct influence on something like Rocky Horror, but they point out in the documentary that it was at least a year before that. He yeah. he always was sort of on the cusp of these sort of things, like uh, a, a sort of a more of middle to Palma movie, in my opinion, The Fury. Um is really interesting if you think of it in context to today where like X-Men movies are basically doing what he was doing in the Fury. Like yeah. there there's and Carrie to be honest, the sort of using real world analogs to bring about these fantastical supernatural like kids with gifts sort of idea. Mm-hmm. He gives you a much more interesting version because it's more cinematic whereas those X-Men movies tend to look like big budget TV now, but yeah. like it's very cinematic. Uh he's 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 totally okay with being a sleazy. Like he admits in, in the movie that he's like, I like looking at women. Like if that, if that's a problem like this, he's the director. This is what he wants to see. Watching dress to kill and kind of carry back to back. They have like mirroring images of soaping up breasts. That's just like, what the, like this is the same shot. And it's just like, and it takes on this quality of like, where you are watching, like, you know, basically socially acceptable pornography. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this is like this is like the Playboy channel and Dress to Kill where Angie Dickinson is showering and staring at her love interest for like in what starts to feel like a weird hallucination where you're like, wait, what am I watching? And like, how does this make any sense? Even at the beginning of a film where you're just being introduced to the main character you're like, what, what, what's going on? Why is she staring at him? Like transfixed, like she's hypnotized. And so like, yeah, he, he does have that kind of weird heightened erotica quality that is rooted in this, in, in, in a grit of reality. He, it's like something he wants to see, right? He's like, just being honest, I want to see a naked woman, right? So he puts it on screen, but he also knows there's a large amount of the audience that wants to see that too. But he, he at least tries to like get away with it. If you know what I mean? So like blowout has another shower scene in the beginning blowout, which is, I'd say one of his greatest films Yeah, um, opens on, and you realize that it's what we're watching is filmmakers watching in an edit bay, a sleazy B horror movie that has nothing to do with the actual film. We're going to watch in so much as it's just a part of the plot. It's like, he gets away with those scenes, 
Body double as well. Body double does that too. Exactly. Body double also has, yeah, much soaping breasts, several scenes of that, like in the beginning and the end. And, um, or, or especially and, uh, the untouchables. <laughs> the untouchables was lacking that, but yes, it <laughs> Sean really... Connery's shower scene. Was... Uh, <laughs> what I wouldn't have given for Sean Connery having a shower scene. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's sort of like that he, it's, it's this weird, like it is a dream logic, but he's also thought it through enough, but then it still can be like, it can, I still understand why it's like hashtag problematic for people because it's like, well, he just wants to show nudity and that that's a problem for some people. And it's, it's interesting how this sort of social justice warrior, it's interesting for this movie to come out now to provide context for a filmmaker that is admittedly problematic at times. And with no entry point would just be dismissed as problematic. Right, right. But you, but if you're open to listening to him, give context, like it helped me realize again, how influential he is to some of my favorite modern directors right now. Like, I don't think we'd have Nicholas Wending Refn making the kind of movies that he's making now. Yeah, his sort of fever dream kind of, like, uh, landscape he works in is yeah. very much kind of, like, that like, comes from Ryan De Palma. Yeah, Refn is a... he. He's all about his this new era of films for him is, like, he's embracing his fetishistic filmmaking side where he just says, I want to put things on screen that I want to see. And yeah. that's definitely De Palma. And then um, another favorite Park Chan-wook, you know, like the director of old boy yeah. and his movies are so Stoker. Like, Stoker is such a De Palma movie. Don't you think? Yeah, I think we even absolutely. talked about that. I thought about that movie a lot this week, just in terms of like it, it sort of the way people dismissed it. It was just like, Oh, that it feels like it sort of belongs in his canon in a weird way. I bet De Palma was a big fan of Stoker. I'd be surprised if he if he saw that movie and didn't like it or see something in it. Like I'd be surprised, and it would be like a question yeah. I would want to ask him because it's very clear that um, to me, like Park Chan Wook seems most influenced by Hitchcock and Brian De Palma, and it didn't didn't seem as obvious to me until I've been watching this stuff, and it's like, oh my god, the like the sort of not always knowing when to end a movie, the the like d- fucking Brian De Palma is more willing to use sort of like it was all a dream as a mm-hmm. reveal at times in like uh, I caught up with Dress to Kill for the first time just over the weekend watched a really the Criterion Blu-ray of that movie just looks dynamite by the way um, and it has quickly become one of my favorites of his even though it's so messy in the end he yeah he, he doesn't know when to end the movie it's 15 minutes too long there's a much better ending if he would have cut it before this certain thing happens right. but yet there's like that's that auteurist stamp that he has and um some people see it as hackiness but i don't know this movie makes very clear De palma and watching his films with that better context makes pretty clear that this is a special filmmaker that like really tries to do things in a specific cinematic way. Yeah. And, it, and it's hard to argue that any of his other more celebrated peers from his era were doing that. And they really weren't not in the same way. Well, he, he especially, it, it's just kind of, it's bittersweet. He comes to like this conclusion in the end, which sort of like hammered the sort of like eulogizing quality of the movie where he's talking about the movies that like, the filmmakers you remember, you remember the movies from their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And so watching him operate in that period of, like, the 70s, which we weren't there for, 80s and 90s, you know, seeing, seeing like, what a sort of reckless filmmaker he was in the best way. Like, yeah. he, he's incredibly controlled and contained um, technically in terms of, like, 
executing these beautiful set pieces, mm. the, the, the staircase sequence in the untouchables, the chainsaw sequence in Scarface. Like I want, like I wanted to, I don't like, I could, I hadn't seen Scarface in a long time and seeing that chainsaw scene, seeing how just beautifully gorgeously executed it was no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Like it was just like this is fucking masterful, and like the the movie is like insanely overlong by the end. <laughs> but it's just like, would you get those great things if you didn't give him free reign to do whatever the fuck he wanted? And he was figuring it out every step of the way. He'd have flops like Body Double and Blowout, where like disappointments box office wise, mm-hmm. and then he had to like rein it in, and like he got a hit with the Untouchables, and so like. He was figuring it out every step of the way, but like, you know, as much as like filmmaking is so hugely collaborative, you have to compromise. He was uncompromising to a certain extent. And so you would get these like flights of fancy and these insane moments because he was reckless, because he didn't know when to end a movie. And it's just like, you, you, again, like back to that sort of like idea of undeniability where you're like, well, you look at the, the step sequence, the Odessa steps taken from battleship Potemkin, you know, a, a, like not even, you can't even call it a ripoff. Cause it's just like a, it's a remake essentially of that yeah. sequence. Yeah. And it's so undeniable. Like you watch it and you like, my body just folds into itself cause it's so intense and so operatic and so heightened and amazing. And you're just like, well, okay, take whatever's goofy about this movie at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, like some of the, some of the sort of like ham fisted mammoth dialogue, <laughs> But just look at that sequence and you're like, this is the movie. Like, this is the whole movie. Or, you know, Sean Connery's shower scene. No, his execution <laughs> sequence. Right. He gets killed. Spoiler alert. I think it's, it's okay. <laughs> next year, it's going to be the 30th anniversary. So fucking catch up if you care. Um, but isn't that that scene right there gets at some of his goofier tendencies, right? Because Sean Connery gets plugged with what looks like 50 bullets. Yeah, and he's still alive saying, when they cut yeah. to them later in the scene. <laughs> Isn't that just like a wop? Brings a knife to a gunfight. Get out of here, you dagle bastard! Go on, get your ass out of here! His mirroring, like, that's basically the same as, uh, you know, uh, Tony Montana getting gunned down at the end of Scarface. Like, Tony Montana... At least he was all coked up, though, you know? He had coke keeping him alive. He's on a berserk amount of cocaine, which would have made anyone else, like, cease to exist. But he's just, like, walking through gunfire. (laughs) And it's like... And so the, the, the way he, like, echoes himself... Like, it creates a, a great kind of world the way Quentin Tarantino, another sort of, like, person yes. who, who who's a master of homage, you know, like... And influenced by De Palma. Tarantino's a huge De Palma uh, yeah. acolyte. You got yeah, you, you, you sure. can see that in his casting choices a lot. You know, like, the, yep. seeing how John Travolta is used by Brian De Palma, mm-hmm. you know, probably w- was the most compe- one of the most compelling elements to him sort of like reutilizing him in Pulp Fiction because he had just come off like all the Look Who's Talking movies and he was he was in this new phase of his career that was most likely just going to stay the same. 
Yeah. And then Quentin Tarantino plucked him from that. But um, the what I was saying was like the way he kind of like creates mirrors and like references. Like, did you notice in Carlito's Way, which we'll be talking about shortly, yes. um, <laughs> the name of the club is this is the like the name of the restaurant Stephen Bauer and Al Pacino are working at at the very beginning when they get to America after they leave Freedom uh, Town. Yeah, no, I didn't notice that. See, I love those little touches that he sprinkles in there. Yeah. Yeah, and so he creates these like echo effects of like scenes that are sort of duplicated again, set pieces. Like mm-hmm. arguably the the escalator sequence is very much similar to the stair sequence in the Untouchables in Carlito's way. Yes. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just like it's this nice kind of like world he creates where you're you're seeing in in auteur and their touches and their obsessiveness and their returns to things that isn't like to me doesn't feel redundant because he always finds a way to like pump new life into them and like find a way to make a sequence like work, you know, in this way that like, like I said, is undeniable. I I think we got to talk about just like those sequences from him, because I think it's so much of what makes him the filmmaker. It's, it's like what makes it's his DNA as a filmmaker is creating these set pieces. You've brought up some, I think we're definitely going to have to talk about one or several major ones in Carlito's way. But I think of like this, there's this moment in the middle of dress to kill that is so masterful that it it makes me love that movie despite the flaws that we already kind of pointed out earlier in, in it, like in its ending. The the whole subway sequence, you probably know what I'm referring to. Ooh, where also Nancy, very problematic. Also very problematic with the way it treats uh, a bunch of black uh, characters. I'm sure that's what you're getting at. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it, very, very problematic, right? But that sequence as a filmmaking uh yeah. In terms of film, it is incredible the way he uses his um, beloved split diopter shot where he keeps uh, a very in focus he- like person in the foreground and then someone's in focus, like deep focus. It's like yeah. split in half. Those shots are amazing. The way he uses that effect is really well done. His split screen effect, all that stuff is very exciting. And he just uses it so well in that sequence to draw, to build the suspense, the tension in Dress to Kill. But yeah, at the same time, there's this horrible, like it kicks off the scene when Nancy Allen talks to these like, Oh, it's like group of like five black guys just sitting, listening to kind of, them. Yeah. Borrowed, you know, maybe from the set of the warriors or something like that. Right. They're sort of like right. hanging like, out in the subway. They immediately you know. want to rape and kill her apparently because she just is standing there. Like it's yeah, yeah. really and then, bad. And then, like yeah. their, their motivation becomes to, they, they this pops up in exploitation movies a lot where they're just like, what are they rape zombies? Like, I don't understand. They just, they're pursuing sort of mindlessly. Like we got to get that lady. And it's like, what? When? Uh, I mean, I know that we live in a very cruel world, but like, it just seems to like operate in this, like uh, this nightmare sort of realm, which is, you know, something that he traffics in quite a bit, but it's just like, when you associate it with a, a type of person that is maligned and like criminalized so tragically constantly in like our fucking culture at large. It's just like you look at it and you see it as an ugly spot in like filmmaking and, you know, entertainment basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like one of those things that Mars, a great sequence like that, or yeah. um, that sequence just really overall, like blew me away. It was so good that it allowed me to be like, okay, that was really unnecessary. Like he could have done anything else to like have a smarter motivation. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, anything James else in one Ramar and the Warriors is a fucking like he's a great creep. Like get you know get four or five James Ramars. Yeah, he'd fit in a De Palma movie, no doubt, man. I mean, Absolutely. was was John Lithgow not available for uh, Dress to Kill that he couldn't use him as his like his token bad guy? You know, yeah, John Lithgow and four stand-ins. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, he could have done that, and it's it, these yeah, these four doughy white guys. Like, <laughs> what's scarier than that? <laughs> Especially these days, man. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's problematic, but yet I just, I still like so much of these like long drawn out sequences where he uses all the elements that cinema can give you like the tools, slow motion, drawing everything out to this ridiculous effect. And it, it just makes me appreciate modern filmmakers, more modern filmmakers like Refn, Tarantino, Park Chan-wook, these filmmakers, it makes me appreciate them more, but also appreciate more of like what De Palma was always going for. And it was always about trying to elevate any of his material. So like, he never thought like, oh, I'm just making a B movie. So why should I try? Why try to elevate it? Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. He takes these like B movie elements and sophisticates them into this kind of like sweeping landscape that you're just like, oh, this is beautiful you know it is and it's that's its own like value that's valuable in its own because most people don't do that like taking it a sleazy like you know skinamax type movie which he sort of those movies came in the wake of doubles like the quintessential cinemax movie yeah it really is man i mean right down to the moment when uh is it craig wassum the lead actor uh uh, yeah craig i can't think of the actor's name wasson or whatever the lead guy in body Mm -hmm. double yeah uh, he's getting shown this apartment, uh, and they're, they're, of course, spying at a naked woman through a telescope. And just the sort of, like, boyish buffoonery that's going on where they're like, oh, oh, oh like, the noises they're making. It's like, good God, are you, are you, have you, are you 10 right now? Like, what is this? Yeah. This, is, this is supposed to be grown men, but it's like that goofiness. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Gets better. <laughs> What's she doing? She's watching you. Want to get a little closer? You bet. Oh, my God. Uh, she's a little out of focus. Yes. 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 <laughs> Hang on. Yes. Does she do this a lot? Like clockwork, every night. There's like an odd, like it can be charming at times. It can just be sort of dumb at times. Mm-hmm. It's that MTV era that they like all the auteurs were transitioning into to find out like how, how they can appropriate certain elements mm-hmm. of pop culture at the time and still kind of keep their sensibility intact. And so like you, you have a, a full on music video in the middle <laughs> of body double. <laughs> Yes, you do. Yes, you do. That is that movie is like a, a sort of a, a great one to to look at in De Palma's career. Of, yeah. Um, for me, of being like, um, because he's so indebted and so enthralled with the Hitchcockian style of filmmaking, which really is its own kind of filmmaking. I think this this documentary also helps kind of um, point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, which side note, De Palma is really exciting to hear him like as a critical voice about other people's movies. Like he talks about Barry Lyndon for two minutes in this doc. And it's like some of the most perfectly articulated criticism of that yeah. movie. It's really just, you know, I would love to, he should do more of that. But, um, in body double, it's like, and it, it, when he, because he's so enthralled with the Hitchcock style, like he will, his movies can often, dip into a sort of like the he pushes the sort of logic illogic the dream logic to a level that just doesn't seem 
it doesn't it it's a sort of what the fuck is going on like you've brought up and it can the movies can sometimes for me I'll get pulled out of it and those are the ones I like like less than his better accomplishments and yeah. body double is an example of that where it's like when he when he goes a little bit too far or just he just really pushes into a sort of what feels like goofy and like weird tonal mix up thing like Hitchcock would do that. Like Rear Window is one of his most celebrated films in his career. Yet when Raymond Burr is he's come to his apartment at the end and James Stewart is only has his camera to protect him. It's like, right. okay, Hitchcock, it's thematically and visually in keeping. He's a photographer. It's like, it's all very thematically connected and a sort of dream fever dream logic can work that he could stop him with the flashing bulbs of his camera. Yeah. But in practice, in a sort of, if you're thinking of it in all sort of practical, like, well, that just wouldn't stop someone from walking towards you and choking you out. Like, but it does in this movie. And you either, like, can get taken out of that experience. And Body Double, for me, has a lot of those moments. But yet, it's still a great example, even with that, of, like, the sort of, the, like, hit and miss exciting quality of a director, a singular director like Brian De Palma. Which, yeah. which the documentary does a great job of, like, giving that context and I, I think while it's kind of crazy that it's going to play in theaters, you know, some theaters in the country, mm-hmm. um, I, I think your ultimate point and is the, the it would have been even better. It was such a joy to watch this two hours just fly by, but I yeah. always wanted more. And I it, there's no way that this is everything he talked about when they, you know, made this no. documentary. Yeah, he, you know that a guy like Brian De Palma has so much more to say about his movies, so much more anecdotes to give that the the longer form sort of streaming version the uh the never sleep again version of this is the one i i would love to see and it probably belongs more now in this modern realm on a streaming service yeah brian de palma came into being you know at a time where like they they wanted people with an assured vision and so like he he's he struggled got his movies made steadily got bigger and bigger movies made and um and then eventually went back to the sort of independent route where like, you know, he has his late his last movie, Passion. Yep. Um seem it seemed like <clears throat> if Sisters influenced Black Swan, like, you know, uh, uh Brian De Palma saw Black Swan, he's like, wait, wait, I I can do that. You know, and like, I did it already. Here, let me show you. And like makes another version of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I haven't I haven't seen Passion. I hear that's a bit of a rough one. Yeah, but I think there there's probably in the same way that he's always been a reckless visionary filmmaker. There's qualities of him. I think he came out the same year as Stoker, right? Or maybe like a year after. So they seem to be like kind of, kind of echoing each other in a weird way. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But just seeing, seeing, I don't know. There's, there is something kind of like bittersweet about like seeing this filmmaker constantly just like swinging, you know, like playing just like swinging so like hard and like taking these insane risks and, you know, and, and knowing that he had like decades to do it. Whereas now it's just like, I don't know if like filmmakers with as broad and exciting of a vision, like have the same means, you know, and have the same like resources at their disposal. We're entering into like a new phase where it's just like VOD where like, you know, studios like Amazon, they are pushing to still have a window of theatrical release where like uh, a movie like Chirac that Amazon put out, like played in theaters for, you know, a month or so. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they just will live online. And so it's like, they're giving 
they're giving the keys to these kind of visionary filmmakers. Um, you know, Nicholas Winning Refn has his new movie coming out through Amazon. It's going to play theatrically and then eventually live online. But it's like, so we don't, we, we don't necessarily know what's going to happen yet, you know, but it does feel kind of like a movie like De Palma is eulogizing the end of several eras that were very exciting to sort of be a part of. Yeah. Have you seen a lot of De Palma movies in the theater? Um, I've seen, God, when did I start? The first one I saw in a theater, really no, to answer your question more directly. Uh-huh. but <laughs> he, he just like belongs in a movie theater. And so like, that's the sort of like, you know, kind of bittersweetness to this documentary is that like, of course his movies will live on in retrospectives in terms of, you know, like, I know that the American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles played a bunch of double features kind of as a primer for this documentary coming out. Yeah, the Metrograph, which is a new indie theater in New York, is doing a whole month-long, all 35 millimeter of every single one of his movies. Like, oh, even awesome. some of, yeah, even some of that early stuff, like um, uh, High Mom and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, Have you seen uh, any of those? Those sort of early, weird, kind of non-secondary no. comedies? No, but I want to see, I, I I thought the two with De Niro looked really interesting. Yeah, like, High Mom is great. That's the one with, like, the, 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 uh, experimental theater piece right kind of popped into the middle of it right i want to see that i want to see um i'm curious about murder a la mode which isn't exactly one of the goofy comedies but uh it's on it's a special feature that whole movie is a special feature on my blue uh the criterion blu-ray of blowout so huh. like it's kind of cool i'm like well shit i'll have to watch this someday because i'm just more curious i want to see more of his movies that i haven't yeah. Um, well, with that, what do you think? Should we uh, slide on over to our, our hold up segment? What do you think? Yeah, I think we're cheating, sort of. We didn't introduce um, what we were going to be discussing on the last episode, but that's okay. Mr. Bugante, it's the second time you turn me down for a drink, man. Well, you don't like my champagne? Hey, it could be. I don't know. Maybe it's a misfucking understanding here. I don't know, man. Maybe you don't remember me. My name is Maybe Benny I don't Bunker. give a shit. Maybe I don't remember the last time I blew my nose either. Who the fuck are you? I should remember you. Huh? What, you think you like me? You ain't like me, motherfucker. You a punk. I've been with made people. Connected people. Who you been with? Chain snatching, jive ass, modicum motherfuckers. <laughs> Why don't you get lost? Go ahead, snatch your purse. Come on, take a fucking walk. Hold up. Wait a minute. Now just wait. For a De Palma episode, it's it's only right that we're cheating. We're cheating on our yeah, podcast. This was all a dream. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, you, we'll wake up after this episode and none of it will have happened. Exactly. Nancy, Ryan, uh, Na- um, Jesus Christ, thank you. Nancy Allen will just wake up screaming and uh, it'll it'll be like it never happened. But cool. uh, yeah, we're, we're cheating and uh, we, uh, we're just sort of sidestepping the announcement stage of Hold Up because it fits too perfectly. I've always wanted to do... Uh, Carlito's way as a holdup segment. And I think for a lot of um, pretty, you know, it fits our, this segment pretty well, but um, before we get into why, what, uh, how, how, how can we explain this segment, Joe? Well, hold up uh, started initially as uh, a movie that you pick a movie that is sort of beloved to you, but maybe has like a, a, a troubled past in terms of either being panned by critics or dismissed by audiences. And so there's something kind of a, uh, complicated about your relationship with it maybe you feel a little bit ashamed of it um so we would use it as we'd use each other as a critical counterpoint to discuss why we're obsessed with these movies how how well they hold up but it's since kind of broadened into something 
where we just take a movie that is sort of, you know, cherished by us and like, does it hold up over time? Like, does our initial fixation with this movie, you know, stand the test of time? Like, do we still have the same affection for it? Has it changed? You know, like, do we have an even deeper appreciation for it now? So, um, or like even more so it reveals like how we've changed, you know, the movies stay the same. Absolutely. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the, the kind of like culture of movies, like, Maybe a, a film that, you know, like, let's say you pick Carlito's Way. And uh, and it's something that I was kind of, like, lukewarm on and has film culture changed to the point where I'm, like, where I'll reassess how I feel about a movie. And it, it's sort of, like, it is a whole different film experience now. Yeah, well, let's start right there. So you were you saw this movie in 1993 in the theater. Yeah. I'm so jealous of that. But you were you were luke, lukewarm seeing the movie? Well, I think it was... It, it came out in like the winter of 1993. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like at the, like this is, this is in the period of time in the early nineties, there was like a lot of great crime movies that came out. And um, that year, I think menace to society had come out. I think I had seen blood in blood out uh, or AKA bound by honor, which it came out as on VHS, which were these kind of like menace to society was like, it's its own immersive, intense kind of like inner city tragedy movie. Um, it, it, it took what was considered sentimentality of boys in the hood and just basically threw that out and became this like unflinching tragedy basically. Yeah. And, uh, blood in blood out was like this, uh, um, like Latino Southern California, crime legacy movie mm-hmm. and so it was like like american me it was like the sprawling crime film so i think it at that point when i saw it in like i think it came out in november or something like that carlito's way did mm-hmm. and so it felt like a little soft maybe at the time like i had seen these like kind of like brutal crime movies which like right. maybe as like a, a as a younger version of me like there was something kind of corny about carlito's way um definitely you know, and and definitely there still are those moments of undeniable corniness. Like you are uh, so beautiful. Oh, so be <laughs> like, what the fuck? Who said this was okay? Twice it comes twice in the movie at the credits. Of course, <laughs> but like now it's just like kind of like what we we previously previously discussed on this episode is like there's an undeniability of filmmaking and there's a quality of filmmaking and it's also kind of largely absent now that it feels the type of movie that Carlito's way is feels precious now in a way that like I maybe didn't appreciate or acknowledge at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's just like an elegance to the filmmaking and, and like just there's, it's also great watching you know, incredible performances from Sean Penn and like, and and Al Pacino, where it's like, as much as he's, you know, kind of transitioning into a scent of a woman who ya phase of his career where he's like, you know, he, he's kind of speaking in, (laughs) I I don't know, pre meme, uh, quote abilities, you know? Right. Um, there's still some great, there's, there's fucking great silent moments with Al Pacino where he's not yelling. Where it's like where he he has a love interest that he's trying to reconnect with after being released from jail, and he's trying to go straight. He's a he's a career criminal, a drug dealer who's returned to his his old neighborhood in New York, 
and he's trying to go straight and he he reconnects with um penelope ann miller her character Mm -hmm. and he goes to see her dance and the complicated look on his face when he sees her performing it's like one of like some of the best like al pacino like moments i've I've seen like he it's so internalized Mm -hmm. and so heartbreaking but still endearing and like there's a lot of that in this movie that like i think because we're at a point with like al pacino isn't plugged in as regularly as he is in movies anymore Mm -hmm. and you can kind of see you can you can kind of now from a distance look at his his work and be like oh he's like even at his like goofiest, he's incredible. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, Heat is an example of that. He's so over the top in that movie, but it, it yeah, I I kind of love it. You know, like his lines and the way yeah. he, his line readings. But I I that's a I mean that's a great angle to to kind of dig in with with Carlito's ways. The 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 trio of lead performances are just cannot be denied. Like. I, I watched this movie, rewatching it recently, and thought, "Where's Penelope Ann Miller gone? She's she was, I mean, it with okay. this in Kindergarten Cop, that was like she was like made an impact on my young psyche, my like twelve year old brain did you have at the a crush time. On her? I did have a crush on her, man, and this movie probably is the reason why. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, even those kind of goofy moments, you know, it's it's uh, the the you are so beautiful moment is like actually kind of sweet and endearing. Yeah with this genre of movie because he's being it it helps open up this character from being more than just a murderous criminal and allows him to be human and cheesy like this character can be cheesy and can be sentimental and misses the woman that he basically screwed over when he went to prison and it adds so much to the movie that like the there's there's several things that really just work so well still for me in this movie is the whole trick of the opening of the movie to the end of the movie. And I love the way De Palma talks about it in the doc as I wanted to set you up where you see Carlito killed in the beginning of the movie. And I would do a sort of, he's, he talks about being influenced by like the 10,000 noir movies he grew up watching. And it's, this is a great mix. Carlito's way of like, it's like a neo noir, but it's also like the crime epic that was very in vogue at the time of like Goodfellas and the ones you pointed out as well. Um, and hell Godfather three, you know, stuff like that, like was all coming out around that time. But another thing De Palma talks about in the doc is how he doesn't, he saw this movie, I think at the Berlin film festival when it premiered in, in the, the year it came out and he said to himself, he's like, I don't think I can make a better movie than this. And the reason it might still fit as a decent hold up selection, because the movie was like fairly well reviewed kind of, it was like kind of dismissed as a Scarface retread, you know? Yeah. I, I think of this movie in comparison to Scorsese, when he made Casino, everybody's like, yeah, it's pretty good, but it's just Goodfellas part two. Right. And if you really give either movie a chance, Casino and Carlita's Way, you'll it's pretty quickly, like, they're indebted to those movies beyond just the fact that the same filmmaker made them, but and they, they sort of slightly reference them in ways that you had pointed out earlier, like with Carlito's way referencing Scarface, but they're different films. And yeah, the, absolutely. the best thing about Carlito's way is to me, it writes a lot of the sort of extremely goofy and misguided wrongs that exist in Scarface. I love Scarface, but it's got a lot of problems. It's a flawed movie. And, um, it's like Carlito's way is the mature response. Like he's just a more seasoned, mature filmmaker at this time. And he made yeah. a more mature, better film. Well, and I, I think Scarface, Scarlito, um, <laughs> Scarface, um, 
does it's stronger in its first half sure. and like it does that thing where it, it tries to show the crime kind of like saga and in that sense like dilutes a lot of the intensity that's developed very naturally in the first part of the movie like a movie like a prophet does that where it's like the opening prison sequence is so like breathtaking and yeah. so intense and immersive the same with like when um tony montana first first gets to america in scarface and he's just sort of there he and stephen bauer are trying to find their way and there's an intensity and a grit and a pulse to the first half of the movie that as they kind of transition into the Giorgio Moroder music sequences with where they take it to the limit and it's just like them throwing around piles of money and it's just like that that stuff is kind of like hilarious as a trope now yeah and but really like, jarring tonally too yeah and it it does kind of like kill the tension of the movie cuz it just starts to like paint in these broad strokes and all the tension is sort of boiled down but with carlito's way it takes place by and large in a concentrated amount of time so the tension that's built is very naturally done and you're with the character as he's going through this and there's like a a very like there's this beautifully staged shot with penelope ann miller where they're like staring in a mirror together not together he's talking to her and she's like looking in the mirror and her her performance i think really just like hits this like crescendo where she breaks down and he smashes the mirror and it's just like there it's this moment of genuine intensity that felt like kind of the best 70s stuff where yeah. it's um there's a scene in mean streets where um harvey Keitel and um robert de niro are arguing in a hallway and they look like they're really fucking going at it like they're really like when they hit each other they're hitting each other mm-hmm. and it's just like this level of like intensity and it's like it doesn't get that physical between the two leads in Carlito's way, but there's an emotional rawness that is just like it's so great. And I, I see what Brian De Palma means, where he's like, I don't know if I could direct a better movie because he like stylistically it's on point. Mm-hmm. He's got like this like this beautiful sense of genuine tension that's built that comes out of the characters, and so I think he like synergized in a way that like. You know, we, we were talking about how the undeniability of these set pieces in his other movies, where it's like maybe if all the stuff wasn't connecting, there still was like this great sequence. Whereas in Carlito's way, he's there's a chase sequence towards the end of the movie that's like I think that's when I texted you and I was like, this like he knows how to fucking build tension like no one else. So good. And so out of this movie, you're invested in the characters, you care about them, you're watching them go through all this stuff, and then we reach this chase section of the movie and it's one of his best chase sequences. At and I Grand think it's Central like, Station, that, that whole ending yeah, thing. It's incredible. Whole, the whole subway chase starts in the nightclub, goes underground, and like oh, it's, so, it's so beautifully executed. And it's it's out of a sense of genuine investment in these people that are like that are that are dimensional and that you you care about. And so yeah, I see I see what he means. And I'm like, I'm so glad that like as much as I would be like, Yeah, it's good, you know, you know, after I had seen it probably 
only the other time, which was in the theater, mm. that now I have like a new appreciation for it. Oh, that's that's awesome because yeah, I've always like really loved this film, but it's probably because when I got to see it, I hadn't yet, you know, like my dad rented it for me and it was uh-huh. like an early rated R movie I got to watch. Sure. Probably another reason Penelope Ann Miller made such an impact, you know, just I was the right age to be taken with, you know, a beautiful actress. But I hadn't seen Goodfellas. I hadn't yet gotten to see stuff like Menace to Society. I would soon after catch up on that. But that can that's De Palma talks about this in the doc as well. Like every movie is judged at at the the, against the fashion of the time. Yes. Which is so something you and I are constantly like at odds with how we're fighting against that on this podcast of like, yeah, yeah people are saying a movie is problematic right now, but like, if you really get down to it, like this is a well-made film, like we'll make that argument a lot. And he's so right. And that's probably what hurt Carlito's way is it just came in the wake of a, a glut of movies like this. Um, some of which were like all time greats, like Goodfellas and Carlita's Way, not quite on that echelon for me, but it's it's definitely one of my favorite De Palma movies. I think it's it's really held up well, and I think that mm-hmm. it's the maturity of it. Like it's he he didn't what uh, and really what differentiates it the most from something like Scarface because I feel like that was an easy reductive like thing for people to just forget to sort of write sure. off the movie at the time. Oh, it's just Scarface again. Is like Scarface. And especially in that goofier second half, that's that's the satire element of the movie. And it, you're not supposed to feel bad that Tony Montana dies at the end. It's sort of like he got what he deserved, right? That's what happens. Right. Well, he's like the American nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he's following this kind of industrious model of like you, you can have whatever you want. And it's to this like blinding excess that just can only end in destruction. Right. And then Carlito's way is a much more like thoughtful state. It's a tragedy, you know, cause you're supposed to like Carlito's way. And I love that the movie doesn't also can be complicated more than um, it's characters are more complex than in most Brian De Palma movies. It's not one of his strong suits, but in this movie, Carlito makes plenty of mistakes that we are allowed. The script is really strong by David Kep in this movie, actually, yeah. too, because it's it really rewrote uh, Bad Influence, which I told you to watch. Oh, that's right. I need to. Yeah, I do need to watch that one. Yeah. You know, and David Kep's still a screenwriter. He's working still today. Like, yeah, um, but it's so strong in Carlito's way because he allows you to see the mistakes that Carlito makes, the his character flaws, things that he can't resist, like he will defend himself like if cornered and that results in bad things. And he, he always kind of points to like how, why do I keep getting sucked into this? It's like, I try to walk away, but it's like, Carlito, you're, you're also putting yourself in these positions. And it gets to the scene you were referencing earlier, where it's a a fight between Penelope and Moore and, and uh, Al Pacino. Thank you. Penelope Ann Miller and Al Pacino. And uh, he punches the mirror and then he just sort of, that's his like one little loud Al Pacino moment in that scene, but it's really pretty calm comparatively to most others. He punches that mirror and then he takes a beat and he, it's my favorite line in the movie. He just says, he's my friend, Gail. Like I have to do this for this guy because he's, he's in deep already and he's trying to help the Sean Penn character who has already done lots of prob- done lots of horrible things that if you were thinking straight as a as a person that was friends with this guy you would have walked away from him and that's what Penelope Ann Miller's trying to get him to do but he can't he has this code and that's the thing that undoes him it's his fault you know and it's tragic because it didn't need to happen and the movie tells you all this shit's going to happen and shows you it in the beginning. And I always forget at the end, like De Palma pulled off the trick he was trying to go for. He wants you to forget that this guy is dead in the beginning of the movie and you're going to get there at the end. 
Yeah. You're going to wind all the way back around. And I forget every time because it's that brilliant set piece that leads up to it. Like you're so enthralled with that. The time has been so distorted in that last 25 minutes, just devoted to an action set piece that when it comes and John Leguizamo turns his head and says, you know, I'm Benny Blanco from the, it's like, Oh yeah. Every time, man, every time. And it's, um, I just, I prefer De Palma in sort of much more mature, uh, tragedy mode. At least it works better. It's much more successful for this movie, even though as much as I adore Scarface, it's like, it's just got more problems. And Carlito's way is, is not the movie that at the time should have been sort of written off as a retread. It should have been the one that people were like, this is much better than Scarface. This is just yeah. a more accomplished film. So I'm really glad that, uh, you know, you were, I, I thought you would like it more. Um, and I'm like, I, I do feel confident that like people would like this movie if they revisited it, if whether they never saw it or had similar thoughts to you at the time, like just said like, eh, it's, it's all right. I think this movie has aged quite well. And I, I, I think people should see it for sure. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, it's got uh, music supervision by Jellybean Benitez, who uh, was a he discovered Madonna basically, and oh wow, was an old freestyle producer. But I don't think he had any hand in the selection of "You Are So Beautiful." <laughs> Probably not. that that feels like De Palma all the way, just pure De Palma cheese. <laughs> yeah, um, and like you know, you mentioned John Leguizamo, but like he's another great you know cat performance in this with Luis Guzman. Oh, so good! It's, just, uh, it's such a dude, good cast. Vigo Mortensen has a scene in this movie where you're like, I yeah. can't believe that's Vigo Mortensen. He's incredible yeah. in this movie. He's so good in, in that one scene. And it's, it also adds to the, it's like, um, this is the movie that's about what happens to the gangsters after the fact, you know, like yeah. you either die or you end up in prison and there's just not a lot of room for guys that have a dream like Carlito. And that's the movie like that's been done before the, I need to do this one last thing has been done countless times. Yeah. But Carlito treads in familiar elements, but really accomplishes it's it. It makes a, a very good version of that. And, um, yeah, such an accomplished film, man. And uh, I think it's worth saying uh, that if people want to see it, I was just looking this up. It's it's streaming for free right now on Crackle, actually. Yep. So you don't even need an account with Crackle. You can watch it. Um, and then it's, of course, on other VOD channels like, you know, all the others. So it's, if you want to watch it without commercials. If you want to watch it without commercials. Yeah, that's right. Crackle will do that for the free service, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, keep that in mind. You'll get commercials, but it won't be edited as far as I know. You'll get the, the rated R version. So it's a little different than if you watched it on TV back in the day. So, yeah, um, that's very heartening to hear. I, um, I'm i really – it was just fun to watch all these De Palma movies. But, like, really, like, Carlito's Way was um, was a really great one to uh, to revisit for, for Hold Up. So I'm glad you dug it, man. Yeah. You think you're big time? You're going to fucking die big time. You ready? Here come the pain! So we're going to wrap up this episode uh, number 132 of Adjust Your Tracking. Um, it was all De Palma and all for good reasons, I'd say. Um, 
really, really a lot of fun. I might keep catching up with some of these other titles of his uh, because I've, I've, it's well, just, it's just nice to be in like the pocket of something, and you're just like it, it gives you an entry point to keep going. Because sometimes you just yeah. need to get on a kick of something where you're like, I like this actor, I want to see everything that they've done. And once you get on that kick, it's like a high you keep chasing until really- you're so high you get machine gunned down at the end of your movie. <laughs> but you could take more bullets than normal. At least you could take yeah, in, in this context. You're so high you could take more movies than you might normally be able to. You can really exactly. you can ride that wave until you get to like Black Dahlia or Snake Eyes and you're gonna be like mm-hmm. yeah, maybe this does need further consideration. Nope. <laughs> or I'm just gonna stop here. Yeah, don't don't watch Mission to Mars. Don't watch Black Dahlia. They're pretty awful movies, but uh you know, what the hell? Um yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. And uh it it kind of like a, a respite for me. I, I, I imagine you feel similar where like, oh, there's not a lot of movies coming out this time of year that you and I get that excited about. Yeah. Especially, I mean, at least for the podcast and you know, like I'm, it's like, yeah, there's the stuff that everybody's forking over money like a zombie for, you know, and uh, going to see that stuff. That's great. But I've enjoyed much more digging deep into some film history with, uh, with, with a guy like De Palma. So it's been very exciting. Um, we hope you do that as well, and we hope you see the documentary De Palma, which is like opening up in select theaters. Uh, it's already opened, like in LA and New York. That's right. Over this yeah, weekend, it's playing at the ArcLight in Los Angeles. Very nice. And then it's going to be a limited release all across the country, but some other cities are going to get it in the next coming weeks. And then I'd say, like in a month or so, look for it on VOD, and it's worth catching up. So we hope you do, and that would be lovely. Uh, now properly signing off we gotta remind you we are now on part of the playlist we are a part of the playlist podcast network um you can find all our new episodes there uh we're archived there you just hit the podcast tab when you go to the playlist.net um our itunes feed now is the playlist podcast you can find us there we're on soundcloud as well same thing playlist podcast um we thank the playlist and all their efforts for uh you know helping us get greater visibility get out there in the world get seen get heard um, that's all really great. We need to thank our super producer, Drew Walner, for all the work he's doing. Um, oh, I'm jumping the gun. How can people contact us, Joe? We're on Facebook, but what oh, about... Yeah, that's true. Facebook, also Twitter, at Adjust Your Track. Um, you can email us. Did you already say that? I didn't. Adjust Your Tracking at gmail.tothecom. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we're, we're, we're in the world. Yeah, you can communicate with us. If you if you want to make a two-hour documentary about me and Joe for some odd reason, well, we're, you can find us. You could ask us that question. And maybe it will... It, but yeah, if you yeah. want to. Yeah, don't think too hard about it. It's not a good idea. But, um, you know, uh, more than anything else, I'm just thankful to just get to geek out about a, a very fascinating filmmaker uh, with you, Joe. So thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Eric. I still get caught up at the end of that movie when Raymond Burr is there to kill, um, uh, Jesus Christ. I'm blanking on the actor's name. Uh, no, no, the guy, um, at the end, James Stewart. Thank you. Good Lord. Um, Christ. (laughs) It's clearly, you're not trying to think of James Stewart. No, clearly it's too (laughs) obvious. Why? (laughs) 